Hello and welcome to Expect Better, a brand new podcast series from Coots, which looks at the thrills and spills of life through a wealth lens. I'm Katie Derham, and throughout this series, I'm talking to some fascinating guests as we explore some of the opportunities that wealth can unlock for you and those that you care about. But as we know, life is very rarely plain sailing, and today's episode faces that reality head on as we delve deeper into some of the challenges that life can throw up. And we're going to touch on an inspiring personal experience that is, thankfully, a tale of triumph over adversity. I'm delighted to be joined by Nicola Mendelssohn, CBE, Vice President for Europe, Middle East and Africa at Facebook and founder of the Follicular Lymphoma Foundation. I'm also joined by Ben Allen, Executive Director at Coots. And as always, before we start on these podcasts, was the question we ask, it is this, in 10 words or less, what does wealth mean to you? Nicola, first to you. Okay, thanks, Katie. Um, 10 words or less, wealth to me means having time to spend with my family. Very wise. Ben, how about you? Well, I would say it's financial security for my clients and their families. I think that's eight words. You've both done very well on the brevity front. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. It's great to have you both on this podcast. Um, so much to discuss, but really... Let's get stuck in, Nicola, into your story. Most people, I'm sure, have uh, heard about your role at Facebook. They've certainly heard of Facebook. Um, if we go back to the beginning, how did you get into that business? Where did you start? Well, um, it seems a very long time ago that I grew up in Manchester. And I certainly, you know, in those days, there was nothing like Facebook. And actually, for me, my, my journey and my career started in the world of advertising, um, leaving university, joining a graduate training scheme at uh, a company called Bartle Bogle Hegarty and did amazing, innovative in, you know, work at that period and moved through different advertising agencies. And then in 2013, uh, Facebook came knocking. I was actually running my own business at the time called Karmarama. And they came on and said, would you like to consider, you know, going for the job of uh, the head of Europe, Middle East and Africa? I remember thinking, gosh, that feels a very strange thing. You know, Facebook wasn't having a great time back then. But I'll never forget my interview with Sheryl Sandberg, where she said to me, Nicola, she said, if somebody offers you a place on a rocket ship, you don't ask what place, you get on. Um, and I promise you, she said, you'll have an extraordinary experience, the, ju the journey and the likes of which, you know, we probably both can't imagine. And, and that is true. It's one of the things that's been absolutely extraordinary about the last seven years is the new learnings, the adventures, the challenges, and they still continue to this day. What was it like making that change from agency to client? It was very different um, because it not only was it a completely different industry, it was working for um, having my own business to working for a big uh, American organization. But actually, there was a lot of similarities as well in terms of you know, the business of advertising is about, the business of Facebook is about advertising. And obviously, that was something I knew very well. And so there was, there were many things, including the relationships and the people that I knew that were similar. Highlights of those first few years there? I mean, you know, we've heard you talking quite publicly about getting the work-life balance right. Uh, I mean, Facebook itself has had its challenges. Just talk us through some of the ups and downs of, of your time at that company. Well, there's been um, so many in terms of you know, it's a privilege to work for a company whose mission is about connecting the world, bringing people together, and actually seeing that in action every day. Seeing and meeting with the small business owners around the world that were able to set up businesses with literally just their phone, um, 
and now are able to, you know, not only you know, feed their families, but actually help to grow their communities as a result. Working in a company um, that has gone, when I, was, when I joined, it was less than 200 people in the UK. And at the end of this year, we'll be over 4,000 people. So to preside over a period, and that's just in the UK, of growth, where we've seen people joining, where we've seen innovation, we've seen the addition of, of new services coming on, all of which are helping people to have voice and to come together. And never has that been more so important than during the, the pandemic and lockdown, where our platforms really have been uh, a way in which people can communicate, get together and actually support one another through things like their local groups. Now, I read that you were going to be an actress when you started out. That does seem a very long time ago. <laughs> but yes, it was something that I, I did and I studied. And I actually turned down um, a place at drama school for my job in advertising. I decided it wasn't going to be the career for me because family, um, Judaism uh, is very important to me and the Sabbath is important and you can't really be an actress if you can't work on a Friday and Saturday night in the theatre. Do you look back in those early days in advertising and think there was one person who really mentored you through or a particular moment where you thought, right, this is my big lucky break? I actually feel that I'm very blessed that I've always had people around me that have given me... Um, advice and been there for me. So whether it was my family, whether it was my husband, John, but actually I've sought out mentors the whole way through my career as well. So, you know, being at BBH, Bartle Bogle Hegarty in the early 90s and lucky to learn from the, the likes of John Bartle, Nigel Bogle, John Hegarty was extraordinary. They were the ones that taught me to take risks. They taught me the power of creativity, the power of a good idea. Uh, and that's always been kind of with me the whole way. They were very entrepreneurial as well. So there's been lots of people. There was an amazing lady called Stevie Spring, who, who, who's a dear friend of mine now, who when I was making my big move from my first company to the second company, taking on a senior management position, I reached out to her and she didn't know me. And I said, can I, can I ask you for some advice, please? And she gave me, she was very gracious. She gave me time and she gave me lots of top tips and so many of those hold to, to this day. Uh, did you feel that you were lucky or do you think you made your own luck? Bit of both? <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think it is a bit of both. Um, you know, there's, there's so many things that we can't control, that, which is where I guess where I am lucky. Um, I was born in Britain. Um, I was born in a, in a very supportive family. Um, but then it is about how we take on the challenges that we face that come along our way. And I think that is about where we can help to, you know, create our own luck in, luck in terms of the ways that we deal with those things. But I think it's also important to remember that there are a lot of people out there who can never maybe, the things that I took for granted, that strong and stable base, they may never, they, you know, they don't have that as that strong foundation. So moving there, uh, I think, is, is, a, is a challenge. So I think that it is important to talk about luck and how it does shape our lives and also our societies and also making sure that we, we spread a bit of that luck around so that there's more opportunities for everybody out there. Let's meet Ben Allen. Hello, Ben. <laughs> we, heard your, we heard your definition of wealth in 10 words or less. You were very pithy indeed. Um, tell, me, uh, tell us, what do you actually do at Coots, Ben? Well, um, I've got uh, two roles really these days. So firstly, I'm a wealth manager. So I look after a, a small number of clients in our financial sponsors and executives team. So that includes people who work in the city, um, so investment bankers, private equity partners and the like, and also board members of FTSE 100 companies as well. Uh, for me, it's quite a unique role. So I've, in some cases, I've, I've coordinated uh, the client relationship with the bank for, uh, for over 20 years. 
And I think that's really put me in quite a privileged position, actually, of, of getting really close to, to these families. So uh, understanding their situation, their outlook, uh, what they want to achieve from the wealth, really. And it's my job to help them come up with a financial plan and then keep it under review to ensure that it's, it's doing what it should be, really. Um, I don't just work on my own. I'm part of a big team, cover all aspects of uh, clients' financial planning. So investments, retirement, um, estate planning, and, and lending is a big part of it as well. Uh, so I suppose that's the, the day job. And the other role these days is, is leading a team of private bankers and wealth managers, uh, helping them to get on and develop them. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, that's equally as challenging, but uh, rewarding as well in different ways. Well, the focus of our chat today is preparing for the unexpected. And this must presumably be an absolute key part of your financial planning for your clients, Ben. Yes, it is. So the relationship with the bank isn't just about money. It's definitely about security and the health of clients and their families as well. So I've been there for my clients when they need me, but I think often that's because I've worked with them, you know, in some cases years in advance to put the proper plans in place well before they knew that anything might be wrong in future. So I think as advisors, we've got uh, a duty really to consider things that might happen one day, whether it's ill health, um, an accident, for instance. And, you know, sometimes these things happen as a surprise. It's it's not just in, in later life. So we really look at the client's overall circumstances. We look at what arrangements they might already have, whether it's through an employer, um, and how those arrangements would actually work if something were to happen. So uh, would there be any shortfalls? Would they have to sell the family home at, at a, you know, what could be a really bad time to have to do that? Uh, would it eat into capital that they actually intended to, to hand on down to the next generation? So there are a lot of issues to consider. And Nicola... That's why we're talking to you today, of course. And thank you so much for sharing your story because after such an interesting and fascinating uh, work life and family life that you've already started telling us about, the unexpected, the unimaginable did happen and you were diagnosed with cancer, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Um, it was November 2016. I was 45. I was living this crazy busy life, you know, running, the, running Facebook um, in this region. I'm a mum of four kids. And I wasn't ill, had nothing wrong, um, traveling like mad. And I found a tiny lump, like smaller than a pea in my groin. And honestly, I didn't think anything of it. And it's only because a very good friend of mine is, is also my doctor that I, I mentioned it to her. And she went, probably nothing, probably go away. But if it's not gone away in two or three weeks time, I'll have a look at it. You can hear how nonchalant I thought about it. And so I went to see her and... I could see that she didn't like it. And within 10 days, I had been diagnosed with follicular lymphoma, which is an incurable blood cancer, something that not many people have heard of, but is actually the most common of the non-Hodgkin's um, blood cancers. It was, you know, just an absolute shock. Um, I was, you know, your life flashes before you, all the things and plans and hopes that you had imagined just suddenly feel as though they're pulled away from you. Then I had to have treatment. Um, I had chemotherapy and I had immunotherapy, which unfortunately my treatments had to stop because of COVID. At the same time, I, I'm what, what they classify as now I have no evidence of disease, even though I'm diagnosed as having an incurable blood cancer. 
gosh, how does that work? So basically, they can't say that you're cured, but basically you're not ill anymore. That's right. So um, where we are with medicine at the moment, they can't actually see the cancer, but because they know from the diagnosis, the type of cancer that it is, most people that get it will probably have six to eight uh, flare-ups, if you like, uh, in their lives. And each time you have more more treatments, your body and your immune system gets weaker and weaker. So that's my prognosis as, as, I, as I look out. I, you know, if, I, if goes well, they could get me between 10 and 20 years. But uh, that wasn't something that I was going to be satisfied with. No, I can imagine. What were your feelings and your actions, if you like, when you got that diagnosis in terms... Well, gosh, where do we start with something like that? But we're talking about um, your life through the lens of wealth in this podcast. Financially, did you suddenly have to completely rethink all your arrangements? Well, the first reaction is you don't think about anything practical. Uh, it's a, it's an emotional, it's, it, for me, it was a totally overwhelming reaction because I had gone from being busy and feeling well to being told that I had a life expectancy that probably wouldn't, you know, maybe not see grandchildren. So everything that I had thought the day before was now not true. I had the worst weekend of my life. Um, that weekend I was diagnosed, partly diagnosed on a Friday, further follow-up on the diagnosis the following week. And I spent the weekend crying. I was also trying to put on a facade to the kids so that they didn't know. I actually lost half a stone in weight from the physical motion of mourning and crying and being so stressed and upset. But it was actually on the Monday that I thought to myself, this isn't who I am. I'm not going to let this cancer define me. And therefore, I've got to work out what my plan is. So that's when I started to go into practical mode of really starting to, you know, do the research. What were the questions I needed to ask? What practical things did I need to know about? Um, and really put all that negativity in a box because I couldn't solve all of those things, but I could control what I did each and every day. And, and that's kind of been one of the main guiding lights that I've had in terms of how I've, I've dealt with this last four years, which is today's going to be an extraordinary day. I'm not going to get it back. So I'm going to make sure that I make the most out of every second minute and hour that I have of the day. Because you were diagnosed young, because you hadn't got any warning about this illness, Bolt from the Blue doesn't even begin to describe it, does it? I mean, did you have any safety net in place from a financial point of view? Yes. So my, my husband and I, especially with four kids, we had done uh, the plan, a lot of planning around that. So, but for me, and so I felt good that because I'm quite a practical, both of us are organized people, we had that. But for me, it was much more around the emotional thing, which is I want to be here for my kids. How am I going to make sure that, that I'm, I'm going to be here to support them through things? I want to be greedy with the time I have. Um, and, my, you know, if you'd have asked me what my dream was when I was starting out, actually it was always around family. And the vision for me of definition of happiness was going to be me in old age, surrounded by my children and hopefully grandchildren. Don't tell my kids because they're going to have a freak out. But that is because <laughs> my eldest is only 23. But, but that's the vision for my life. And, you know, that's how I def define what, what, what wealth and what is important. Ben, listening to Nicola's story, does this resonate with other sort of clients and, 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 and uh, examples that you've dealt with at the bank that, you you know, you've got people who've got these sudden health issues and you've got to step in and say, OK, you can, we're going to try and help you concentrate on the emotional and the family and help you get the practical stuff in place. Yeah, I think um, what really helps us there when, when it does happen, and, and as I was saying earlier, it's always a surprise, isn't it? 
is the fact that we we know the clients really well and they know who to come to. Um, I think to put it in context, uh, the last few months have been a strange year for anyone, hasn't it, really? But a lot of people have been um, thinking about what plans they might put in place and you've know, been in regular contact with people. And in some cases, they've had more time at home than they would otherwise do. They might not be commuting and so on. And there's just been a much greater level of uncertainty than we've seen before. And I think people are now wanting to consider the implications for things like debt or obligations for you know, school fees might be a good example, if things do go wrong. Um, and it, it's not always a capital sum I'm talking about. It's quite often about having an income replaced if, if, if there's a, a bad event. Um, but I think coming back to what I originally said, it's about knowing the clients well, having the relationship. Uh, when things go wrong, unfortunately, it's a fact of life that things do go wrong, don't they? Uh, they know exactly who to speak to and how to get hold of us. And that's, um, that's important to them. Nicola, it sounds as if you had already put a lot of sensible planning in place so that you weren't having to worry too much about the sort of um, the financial impact of your of your health crisis. Um, but subsequently, of course, you have made decisions to use your money in a different way because you've set up a foundation. Yeah, that, that's correct. So you know, what became very clear as I um, learned more about my cancer was, well, I'd never heard of follicular lymphoma before. I don't know if you had. And it wasn't very well known. And yet there's hundreds of thousands of people living around the world with this cancer and about 15,000 new cases every single year. It's a cancer that's been around 100 years, yet the last breakthrough treatment, which has increased the survival rates, was actually in the 90s. And so it just occurred to me that with all the kind of science advancements that we've had that, and the data and the technology that's out there, that it's still incurable. And everybody was saying to me when I was dying, I was, well, don't worry, because there's loads of great changes that are happening in medicine. And it's true, there are. There's extraordinary things happening, but not for FL. So that's why in 2019, November 2019, I did set up a foundation called the Follicular Lymphoma Foundation, whose only aim is not to exist. We want to do ourselves out of business as quickly as possible uh, and find a cure or cures for the people that are out there today. So this is now going to be um, a focus of, of my, my, for the rest of my life uh, till we do find that cure. And it is at the foundation. If anybody's interested, it's the, the LFF.org uh, to find more information out about it. So you only set it up at the end of last year, though. So presumably all the efforts have been sort of had to be changed considerably over the last few months. Yes, um, you're absolutely right. Like many uh, other charities, um, COVID-19 has really hit us. We were supposed to have three big fundraising events this year. One was going to be in uh, LA, one was going to be in New York, and the, well, there was about to be one in September in London. So that, that all had to change. And especially, we can't, I couldn't even consider doing events because people that have uh, follicular lymphoma are categorized as being the most vulnerable um, to COVID. So I have to continue to, um, you know, shield and isolate even now. It's not going to be possible for us to have an event till at least a year off even from now. So we've adapted. It's been much more on one-to-one -one canvassing. And I think as Ben was talking about, there, there have been, a, this has been a period where people have been looking 
at what legacies they want to leave, what things that they want to do with their money. And there are people out there, a lot of very generous people, very philanthropically minded in terms of wanting to, to do something. And this is a cancer that can be cured. When I talk to the doctors and scientists, they talk about the fact that they think it will be cured. But it's the fact that there wasn't enough resources and focus put on it, which has got us to, to where we are today. Ben, what's your experience at Coots of clients wanting to set up charities? Is this something that has uh, grown in importance, do you think? I think Nicola's absolutely right. It's a deeply personal thing. So there are a number of different levels to it. Um, as with so many things, it's not just about the money. So we look after some successful people who've, in some cases, had incredible careers and they've gained some experience that they want to share. So sometimes it's about giving time and knowledge rather than anything financial, for instance. Uh, so our clients can sit down with the Coots Institute. They can talk properly about the areas that are of interest to them. Uh, we'll introduce them to, uh, to people and to charities that will help them to achieve what they want. We have a, a huge amount of expertise in that area. But that being said, yes, we do have growing numbers of clients who want to look at ways to help financially as well. And they want to set up something during their lifetime. So on a personal level, there are ways in which clients can structure their giving. If they put the right plans in place, it can help provide a sense that their assets are being put to good use. And that can be rewarding to them you know, while they're still alive. Some clients don't want their children to be affected by knowing the level of their overall wealth. So giving them some exposure to wealth via this charitable element can give them that involvement and uh, some experience of wealth without it necessarily influencing their own careers or their financial motivations in a negative way. So we use structures that can be set up anonymously. We take on all the unexciting bits like the, the admin and the tax reporting so that the clients can then focus on the really interesting elements, so helping causes that are, that are dear to their hearts. It must get very uh, personal for you, though. You've worked with clients for many years and then something like this happens if somebody comes... As with Nicola's experience, you know, with a big health crisis, you know, you, you're not just a faceless banker, are you? I hope not. Um, so I've looked after clients for, for 20 years or more and, and they become friends. And quite often these discussions change the nature of people. So um, I've got a, uh, someone that I've known for years and years. He would be absolutely delighted for me to describe him as a hard-nosed investment banker. And a couple of years ago... I took him in to meet one of our, our wills specialists and uh, he crumbled in, in front of me. And it was simply the thought of, he was imagining his family, his wife and his children in his absence after he'd gone. And, and he was incredibly affected by just getting that out in the open. Um, that type of discussion can be quite probing, but that's for a good reason, really. We want to make sure things end up as intended and um, it's difficult sometimes when someone you've got to know well, uh, even a, in a professional capacity, fall ill or a member of the family dies. These are very long-term relationships that I'm talking about here. So in many cases, actually, I've seen children of clients grow up from when they were born. I've seen people go downhill in retirement, very sadly. I've seen serious illnesses. The last things anyone wants to happen, but they do happen, and I suppose the, the solace that I can take from, from the personal perspective, if I can stand back 
and see that we put the right plans in place many years in advance, then that's gratifying. But, you know, the emotional side, as you say, it does require strength and, and professionalism, actually. But as you say, you're, you're there, aren't you, Ben, to try and take some of the administrative burden from families at difficult times. Yes, we are very much as an institution. Nicola, your story is inspirational to anybody listening to this, going through cancer, who knows somebody who's gone through this sort of health challenge. Um, is it possible for you to give words of advice to anybody who might be facing this sort of diagnosis, how they can handle moving forward, whether it be practical or emotional advice? Big question there. Um... One of the things that I think this has taught me is the preciousness of each and every day. Making sure that you find a moment of joy in every day and making sure that you focus on the here and now and what you can control. There's so much of our lives that we can't control, but there's still so much that we can control. And most of all, surround yourself with loving people. Um, if not, take the people out of your life that, that are causing you that pain. Uh, and that anguish and find the people that can be there to support and care uh, and to be there for you. Nicola Mendelssohn and Ben Allen, thank you both very much for joining me today. Nicola Mendelssohn there, Facebook VP for Europe, Middle East and Africa and founder of the Follicular Lymphoma Foundation. And thanks also to Ben Allen joining in with the Coots perspective for this episode of Expect Better. We would love you to rate and review today's podcast as well as subscribe too. Plus, if you'd like any more information on any of the topics covered today, email investmentqueries at coots.com. And as always, the coots.com homepage has a whole host of information about financial planning and investments and banking. In the next episode, we'll be turning the spotlight on the hot topic of responsible investing, including a fascinating look at the role of gender with the help of one of the leading lights in this area, co-founder of Gender Smart, Suzanne Beagle. The Rose Review, which came out a couple of years ago and there's just been an update on it, demonstrated that if we invested in female entrepreneurs at the same level that we were investing in male entrepreneurs, it would bring at least £250 billion to the UK economy of GDP. It's going to be another good one. Do join us then. <laughs>